If you have a Bible, please could you uh, turn to the page up there? Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 16, some verses on the resurrection. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, and was believed on in the world, and was taken up into glory. So let's, a few words on that, and then we'll sing again and have communion on this special morning. Jesus, like bread, was broken. Jesus, like bread, rises. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What is the Christian God like? Um, there's loads of people who muse about God, and they just sit, and they muse, and they meditate, and they ponder, and it's like this vague God that people talk about faith and God, and um, if you thank God in the Oscars, you get a clap, because everybody loves the idea of faith and God, but we want to do more than muse and ponder in vagueness this morning, we want to have a very specific, pinpointed idea of who God is, <clears throat> and that His life can change ours. And I know people that have mentioned a slightly more specific God in the Oscars and then got cancelled and haven't been allowed to do a film again. There once was a man called... This isn't a joke, it's a story. There once was a man called Hecodemus, or Hecodemus, and he had a field... And uh, Plato, in about 308 BC, bought the field and did what he did, which was muse. Just muse and float and write musy thoughts. And he did that, and then after, and because it was Academus' field, you call it the academy, where you go to school and you just sit and muse, and you get a degree and go into debt for three years of sitting and musing. Well, that's all because Plato bought a field from Hecadamus. And then in the field, their schools developed and started popping up around where people just mused and thought about philosophy and God. And they were called the Sholarchs, or well, what we would call now the scholars, or the schools, all from this field. And that happened about, for about 800 years, until, until two Christians rocked up, called Justinian and Theodora, and said, let's just be a bit more specific and helpful to the world than musing about God and philosophy. And they built the Hagia Sophia, and that became a centerpiece of worship. Um, but the scholarly God, the musy, floaty, harmless, wonderful, Oscar-winning God, he's made a bit of a comeback <clears throat> in recent years, but he's as impotent now as he was back with Plato. He doesn't really change anybody's life. Um, he's stacked high in power and awe, but lacks in personality and any penetrating sort of impact. Um, churches a lot these days speak of God, but they rarely mention Trinity 
or the big J word that we'll get to in a minute. I was reading an article this week, and here's Aristotle's God. Um, so in the Platonic sort of sphere, 384 BC, here's God in his metaphysics. Aristotle defines divinity this way. Ready? Any academics? The essential actuality of God is life most good and eternal. We hold then that God is a living being, eternal, most good, and therefore life and a continuous eternal existence belongs to God. For that is what God is. End of chunk. Harmless and floaty. God is good. God is big. Wonderful. Problem is, he should have been reading uh, about Isaiah, who was writing about a very more specific God than that. Problem is, people think, well, if Aristotle and Plato are good at maths and can figure out the angles of a triangle, they must be an authority to teach us about the nature of the divine God. Rubbish. Rubbish. The living God isn't known by academics. It's known by nobodies, sinners, failures. That's the hope this morning. Aristotle had nothing to do with church. He didn't make his way to Jerusalem to find peace with the living God. He wasn't awaiting the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the High Priest, the Son of David. Instead of crying out to him, he trusted in his intellect, his philosophy, his politics, and his pagan religion. And that stands at odds with Isaiah's very specific God, where Isaiah said, there is one coming. And I say it in front of a torture device behind me. There's one coming. My divine servant, says the Lord God. My elect one. Not broad. One who will be full of the Spirit and bring true wisdom and justice to the world. He will be a light to the Gentiles at Park End Church. I added that bit. Justin Martyr in the second century said, a true lover of wisdom, any philosopher must love Jesus. Jesus. And into the world of musings and Oscar, Oscars and cold academia comes the Lord Jesus Christ. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated, or if you've got the King James Version, justified by the Spirit. He was seen, not vaguely, but seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on and taken up into glory. We have this morning an unmissable hope, a pinpointed, localized display of God and who He is. And everybody watching at home, gathered here, will either be drawn in as we peer to who God actually is, or will be repulsed. That's what happens. And we had it spelled out to us on Friday, who God is. Good Friday, where the Lord took vengeance against sin and death upon the Lord as a substitute for sinners, on the torture device, which looked like the one behind me. 
where, according to Romans chapter 4, Jesus was handed over to death for our sins. And now it's Sunday. If Jesus remains dead, sin and death are the strongest powers in the world. That's it. And we have to scratch out all of the verses in this book and any other book that says grace, peace, and hope to you. Because there is none. Because we're all condemned. You see, all academics gathered here, all muses, clever people, not clever people, rich, poor, English, Welsh, Irish, Scottish, everyone. It all ends for us at death. If that's the strongest power in the world. It's the great leveler. It is weird that I'm standing in front of a torture device and people here think it's Good Friday or Good Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. This torture device was where the greatest fight of all took place. That is why this icon is the most famous icon in the world today, even more than the McDonald's Golden Arches. People know this one. I think McDonald's is number two. Because everybody recognizes that this battle behind me is it. Because otherwise we're all finished. Is there someone more powerful than sin, death, decay, and separation from the life of God? A cross, repulsive to some. But some here think it's good. Why? Why? My friend released a video this week. And he did a tour of Rome in the Colosseum. He's asking the question, why are we calling this good? It's a torture weekend leading to a Sunday. And he brings us to peer in. And he takes us to the first century in Rome where this message and weekend exploded and finally arrived here to Cardiff in 2022. And what's interesting back in Rome is the crucifixion was not a place where God would go up until this point. And he went to the Colosseum, and in the Colosseum there were sick games in honor to their gods. And there was a seesaw, one of them was a seesaw, and they put two like low people on each side of the seesaw with wild animals each side, and whoever went low would be eaten by the animals. And then they'd all, the whole crowd were watching, well, who's going to go low and who's going to try and stay high to survive? And they'd fight to the death. It was all in honor of the gods who seemed to like that thing. And then, and then they would gore women to death who they didn't like. And it was a sick sort of offering to gods of that. It was really interesting because around the edge of the Colosseum with all this seesaw stuff happening were crosses and crucifixions and prisoners being killed the interesting thing is, though, it was such a low torture device. It was really for the lowest of the low. It never got sent to space in the Colosseum. That was for the seesaws and the other more enjoyable events. These were just the lowest. Although they're just being killed on the side. We don't even know their names. They're just there, dotted around the edge. Just an embarrassing way to die. A symbol of how low you were. And then enter the Christians to first century Rome, preaching Jesus is our God and he's alive. And our God isn't like your God. Our God went on one of those. 
the bottom of your pile, our God doesn't look like a platonic God. Our God looks like a victim on a tree. And then he showed us early Roman drawings of the God of the cross. And do you know what they drew? Donkeys dying on a cross. Because to the elite in Rome, the idea that the living God would join us, die on a cross, was so repulsive and ridiculous and utterly ungodlike, they thought he was a donkey. So you see drawings of embarrassing donkeys. Hail the embarrassing donkey God. That God is an animal. And then they killed Peter on one of these devices upside down. And Andrew on a cross-shaped cross in Greece. The shame and the embarrassment. And yet, by 380 AD, half of that empire had converted. How? Because of Easter Sunday. Because Jesus rose again. And not only did he go there for the lowest of the low, he defeated that power for the lowest, for the common man, for the sinner, the guilty, the offender. And that is why there's a group of people here saying, hallelujah, what a weekend this is. Our God arrives at the bottom of the pile and rises and brings the low with him to the safe place forever. Now if you go to the place where they crucified Peter upside down, there's a cross-shaped church of hope there. Now, if you walk around places in the world, you'll see people doing the sign of the cross. Now if you look around this building, there are people who have it on their necklaces or tattoos, on their arms or their chest or their necks or their backs. Why? Because now, because Jesus is risen... Death doesn't have the last word. Now, because Jesus is with us, for many of us, this symbol and this day is a reminder of the peace we can have in torturous times because they don't have the last word, because they didn't have the last word on Jesus. People have the cross around their houses because now it's a symbol of God's presence with us in our suffering and promise that he will get us through. Here's, do you believe in miracles? There's miracles at the center of our faith. Here's one. Because of the resurrection, Jesus has turned this God-forsaken execution into world domination. Here's another miracle. Jesus was handed over to death for our sins, but he's raised for our justification. Here's another. God appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels, and now he's taken up into glory. And that word, vindicated, justified, that is who God is. That means he was proved right on this day. He was who he says he was, righteous. He can handle our problems, our evils, and our death. You see, in the book of Ezekiel, it says this, the soul that sins must die. We all have to die because of sin. 
So on Good Friday that Sue walked us through so artistically and reverently on Friday, we're peering into Jesus and he dies. So as the world peers in, the question is, well, has he sinned? Is he one of us? Just like us? Has sin stung Jesus? So there's this condemned word upon him on Friday. But on this day, this passage says, vindicated, new statement upon the name of Jesus. He is who he says he is. I wonder if the devil threw a party the day that Jesus left the battlefield. And three days later, I just picture another demon coming up to him. Satan is Jesus. He's back. He's back. Death couldn't hold him. He's won. Your empire has received a death blow. And now when I hold the hand of loved ones or church members who I love and care for as they lie dying in hospital beds, it is not speculative, Disney-esque, blind, vague faith that we have when I read these words with confidence. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And He, in your darkest moments, will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. That is not some psychological frenzy. This is truth unchanged, based on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I could put it like this. It takes more than a death to go to a better place. It takes the death of Jesus in your place. I read about a premiership football player in a taxi the other day. And he was going to an after-match uh, party in a fancy nightclub. And he didn't realize there was a strict dress code. And the taxi driver knew. And he turned around and said, you can't go in dressed like that. You're still in your tracksuit. And the footballer said, well, I'll be late. What can I do? And the taxi driver said, here, have my shirt. Took off his shirt and swapped and had the player's tracksuit and gave him his shirt. He said, you cannot get in unless you have what is mine. Put it on. The Lord Jesus Christ must have our death and we must have his risen life and goodness shared with us. Do not be vague this morning with your faith. Be Jesus-centered. And I close with this before we come to the singing and the communion table. What does this mean for a Christian? Why is it such a great weekend? Well, he was handed over to death for our sins, but risen for our justification. Or, to put it as 2 Corinthians puts it, God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that means three very personal things. Because we trust in Jesus, the sin-bearing, resurrected, life-giving God-man, the following things are true of us this morning. 
And I hope you have a wonderful day because of it. Number one, Jesus cannot ever enter again into death and neither can his church, which includes you. We are resurrected with him. The world will one day fold in and just judgment will be allotted to everybody for how they've lived and yet the church will still be forgiven and never face judgment. And so death for the Christians this morning isn't called death in the Bible. It's called falling asleep. And it's not separation from God. It's the moment where we arrive to more joy than we've ever experienced here before. Romans 8. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to you and your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Ephesians 2. God raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Number two, it means this. You are legally in the courts of heaven, irrevocably declared just as righteous as Jesus. Now let that sink in with all of our sins. You are legally and irrevocably declared this day just as righteous as Jesus. And you are welcomed into the family of God with open arms. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Ladies and gentlemen, the center of our walk with God is not us. It's Christ and what he's done for us on this great weekend. And the third point, therefore, is this. When this week we are caught up in sin... Messing up, bad habits, feeling hopeless, feeling worried, feeling lonely. We've been a bad witness. We haven't read our Bible. We haven't prayed. We've been hypocritical and we've offended everyone, including God. It's important that we do one thing. Remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen for us and we are risen with him. And therefore, even the joylessness we feel on Wednesday morning or Monday morning is a forgiven joylessness because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like bread, he was broken. Like bread, he rises. Hallelujah. What a Savior.